Welcome to Christian Casemakers, where we equip ordinary Christians to be confident casemakers. My name is Joel Etheridge, and I am your host. Welcome, everyone. It's good to have you join me for this episode of Christian Casemakers. In this episode, I want to review five principles for engaging intelligently. Many of the thoughts and ideas that I'm going to be sharing today are not original to me, but I do think I can add my own uh, unique perspective, one that hopefully will provide a greater clarity and insight into this topic. The five principles that I want to cover are, first, know your role, second, know your audience, third, present a strong case, fourth, embrace uncertainty, and fifth, understand the difference between proving and accepting. So those are the five principles that I would like to cover in this episode, if we have enough time to get to all of them. Let me start off by talking about knowing your role as a Christian casemaker. Let me read a passage out of John chapter 4, verses 34 through 38. In this passage, Jesus has just finished talking with a Samaritan woman who's gone back into town and told everyone about the experience that she had with Jesus Christ. While she's in town, the disciples are encouraging Jesus to eat something. And Jesus says, quote, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And of course, the disciples start to wonder whether somebody could have brought him something to eat while they were gone. But Jesus responds in verse 34 by saying, This is my food, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Then Jesus says, Don't you say that there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I am telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. I want to draw attention to the point that Jesus makes there, that there are two seasons. One is a season of planting or gardening, and the other is a season of reaping or harvesting. Maybe in our modern-day language, we would say that there is a time for gardening and there is a time for harvesting. But notice also that Jesus identifies two types of workers. He identifies the reaper who is already receiving pay and gathering fruit. And he identifies the sower, the person who actually does the gardening. You know what a gardener is, right? A gardener is one who prepares the soil, who plants the seed, who cares for the seedling, who pulls the weeds. Basically the one that does most of the work. 
th- th- that's all work done so that there will be a successful harvest in the future. Now, for those of you who garden, you know that the largest share of the work is in the gardening. However, the sower and the reaper are on the same team. They are both doing necessary and essential work. Jesus summarizes by saying, I sent you to reap what you did not labor for. Others have labored, that would have been the gardeners, and you have benefited from their labor. So here is reality. Most of us will be laborers. Most of us will be gardeners. Few of us will be harvesters. Uh, The reality of it is, is that there will be a lot more gardening than there will be harvesting. So what are the implications of this passage for us as Christian casemakers? Well, I think first and an obvious implication for us is that most of us will do a lot of gardening, but will not get to harvest anything. I mean, simply put, we, we need to avoid the mindset that success lies only in harvesting. Uh, for most of us, success is going to be made up of gardening. So we shouldn't try to harvest in every encounter. Um, instead, m- meet the person where they're at and simply m- make it your goal to give them something to think about that will move them forward in their spiritual journey. Uh, Maybe another way of thinking about this is thinking of yourself as a link in a long chain. You might be the first link, you might be the middle link, or you might be the last link. Uh, Your goal is to move them on to the next link. Or maybe if we used a sport analogy, uh, success whenever we get up to the plate is to make the case for Christianity. And it's really not just limited to hitting a home run. Most of the time, we're going to be hitting singles, doubles. And the goal is just to move the runner, in this case, our listener, a non-believer, around the plate. Uh, Essentially, make it your goal just to make contact with the ball. And then finally, let's not confuse being a gardener with the gift of evangelism. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes, quote, And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So whatever the gift of evangelism is, some have it. But that also means that some do not have it. So what is our role as Christian casemakers? The Apostle Peter actually addresses this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where to all Christians, he says, quote, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, while some of us are certainly endowed with the gift of evangelism, not all of us are. And yet, all of us should be prepared at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that we have. 
Uh, maybe put another way, not all of us are gifted as evangelists, but all of us have a duty to be Christian casemakers who give a defense of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And that phrase, give a defense of the hope, another way of saying that is to explain why we have hope in Jesus Christ. Are you prepared to provide a defense for why you know that truth exists? Uh, can you explain to your family and friends the evidence that you have for the existence of God? Are you equipped to show how the New Testament is historically reliable and should be believed? These are the essentials of Christianity. Here's the reality. If objective truth does not exist or can't be known, then we cannot know any objective truth about the existence of God. Uh, if we can't know any objective truths about the existence of God, then how can the objective truth claims of the New Testament be true? Now, if you feel ill-equipped in this area, you're not alone. I have felt that way as well. Others have felt the same way. And that is what this training is for. As a ministry, Christian casemakers exist to train and equip people, just like you and I, to be able to give the evidence for objective truth, to be able to give evidence for the existence of God, to be able to give evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. All right, so now that we have a better understanding of our role as Christian casemakers, specifically what our role is and isn't, let's move on to the second principle, and that is knowing your audience. In a sense, we're making the case for Christianity. We're presenting evidence for people to consider. As such, our audience becomes a type of jury, if you will, drawing their own verdict based on the evidence that we present to them. And just like in a criminal trial, understanding who our audience or who our jury is made up of is critically important to deciding the best approach for making our case. Now, one way that we can categorize our audience is by breaking it down into two groups. Let's just call one group a group of believers. The other group is the group of people who are non-believers. So let's focus in momentarily on the group of believers. Now, you might be surprised to know that we should make the case to believers. And let me explore why that's the case. First, let's define believers as those who, for you know, whatever reason and to some extent, believe that objective truth exists, that the God of the Bible exists, and that the New Testament claims about Jesus are historically reliable. So that is our group of believers. Now, let's further break down this group of believers into two subgroups. Group one is composed of believers who are convinced of their position. They don't need any evidence. As a matter of fact, it could be in spite of any evidence for Christianity. In essence, these people would still be Christians even if there was convincing evidence that Jesus Christ was not who he said he was or that he was not resurrected. 
Uh, so these people are Christians with little regard to any so-called evidence. Now, you might find it surprising that we even need to make the case for Christianity with this group. But we do. The reality is that many of these people are not prepared to give a defense for the hope they have in Christ Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. They have a hope in Christ Jesus. They're just not prepared to make a reasoned case for their hope. Now, these are those who, when you ask them why they're a Christian, they may typically respond that, hey, I just know it's true. In essence, they will appeal to their internal witness. Let me dive into that a little bit further. It may not be a term you've heard of before. An internal witness is essentially our internal, personal, spiritual feelings and experiences. We use these as confirmation that what we believe to be true is actually true. In short, this internal witness is thoughts we have that we take as God-affirming to be true, something that we believe to be true. I mean, think about that for a moment. What are some personal experiences that confirm to you internally that truth exists, that God exists, and that miracles are possible, and that the New Testament is historically reliable? Uh, for some of us, that internal witness may be what we perceive as you know, God speaking to us. For others, they may say it is God's Spirit affirming it to them. Still, for others, the internal evidence is that their life has been changed for the better. For other Christians, the internal evidence that is convincing is an increasing victory over some sin. Finally, for others, I mean, it may be an increasing awareness of their spirituality. Now, while all of that sounds admirable, that's not obeying the command we're given in 1 Peter. Every Christian is called to be able to make a reasonable case for their faith. So this first group, this group of believers, needs to be equipped and trained to make the case for Christianity. You see, internal witness or internal evidence is alone wholly inadequate for making the case for Christianity for several reasons. First, internal evidence or internal witness is used to make the case for the core doctrines of almost every religion. So any religion can be argued to be true based on internal evidence or internal witness. Which leads me to the second reason. Internal evidence or internal witness alone is incapable of discriminating between which beliefs about God are accurate and true and which ones are false. Uh, in addition, internal evidence or internal witness is, you know, by definition, a personal experience, which cannot be verified or experienced by other people. Uh, whatever happens on the inside of you can never be tested for what we call falsifiability. Now, that's a big word. What does that mean? Falsifiability is the capacity 
for some claim to be proven false using evidence. I mean, think of all the claims that people have. Now, to be sure, they may see external behavior change, but they're never going to be able to see what has happened on the inside of you. Uh, they will never be able to appreciate the internal experience or internal witness that you have. And given that the goal of Christian case-making is to make the case to others, internal witness or internal evidence is, you know, compared to external witness or external evidence, inadequate to the task. So that's our first group. Believers who are convinced without any evidence. The second group of believers are those who are doubting their faith because of a lack of evidence. Um, often they begin to doubt their faith when it's ridiculed or when it comes under attack by those who are aggressively hostile to Christianity. Intimidated, uninformed, unskilled, they feel threatened by the claims made against their Christian faith. And the results are predictable. Uh, many shrink into silence. For others, their, their doubts become overpowering, and they abandon their faith. As Christian casemakers, our role with this group is to fortify their faith by arming them with the evidence for Christianity and training them on how to present it clearly, graciously, and persuasively. So those are our two first two groups. They're both part of the believer group. So now let's shift to the group of non-believers. By definition, non-believers are those who, for whatever reason, and to some extent, don't believe that truth exists, or that God exists, or that miracles are possible, or that the Bible is reliably accurate. Now, just like the first group, we can break this group down into two subgroups. The first group is composed of non-believers who are doubting their non-belief because of a lack of evidence. Put another way, they're open to honestly considering evidence for objective truth. Uh, they're open to honestly considering evidence for the existence of God or considering evidence that the New Testament account of Jesus is reliable. Now, our goal with this group is to engage them in conversation where we have the opportunity to lay out the evidence for Christianity in a clear, gracious, and persuasive way so that they can reach an informed and meaningful verdict on their own. Now, to achieve this, we will need to demonstrate a confident willingness to meet them at their point of need, to meet them at their point of disbelief. Now, the second group of non-believers are those who are so opposed and hostile to Christianity and so confident in their non-belief that they are not open to considering any evidence supporting the case for Christianity. That being the case, our response to this group should really be twofold. First, we should be praying for them, asking God to remove the hostility they have towards Him. But secondly, we should use good works 
to demonstrate the love of Christ to them. Here's the reality. Until God intervenes, they will be opposed to hearing the case for Christianity. So our first two principles of engaging intelligently is to know your role, but then also know your audience. The third principle of engaging intelligently is to present a strong case. It's not enough just to have good evidence. Uh, we must be able to clearly, graciously, and persuasively use that evidence to make or argue, if you will, the case for Christianity. Now, the type of argument we're making when we do this is called an abductive argument. It's also known as inference to the best explanation. Let's consider some examples. Uh, so you're walking down the seashore, and you see a message written in the sand. And the message says, Joel loves Janice. You infer from seeing that message in the sand that a real person named Joel was there earlier and drew that simple message about his love towards Janice in the sand. Now, what leads you to this conclusion? And equally important, what warrants that conclusion? Well, what leads you to that conclusion and what warrants that conclusion is the fact that a real person named Joel writing this message about his love towards a real person named Janice at this spot a little earlier would, if true, best explain the fact that this message now appears before you in the sand. Let's look at another example. Many of us have seen the pictures of the lunar rover that astronauts used to drive around on the surface of the moon back in the 1970s. So let's consider four explanations for how that lunar rover got onto the moon. Uh, one explanation is that it just appeared there on its own out of nothing. A uh, second explanation might be aliens put it there. Uh, a third explanation could be a bomb went off in a junkyard here on Earth. And the explosion was so strong that it caused the trajectory of some of the fragments from that junkyard to be on a collision course with the moon. Interestingly enough, during flight and based only on the laws of nature and of the universe, those fragments self-assembled themselves into a perfectly designed, fully functional lunar rover that gently landed itself on the moon. That could be a third explanation. A fourth explanation could be a team of highly intelligent engineers on Earth designed, built, and tested a lunar rover and then sent it to the moon through a series of carefully planned, complex steps. Now, as you hear those four explanations for what we observe rolling around on the moon, most of us would agree that option four is the correct conclusion. But the question is, what warrants that being the correct conclusion? It's the best conclusion 
because of the four options we have to choose from, it is the explanation that, if true, best explains the lunar rover being on the moon. In short, it's the explanation that has the most explanatory power. Now, we're not left to our own imagination when determining the strength of an explanation, or what I've called explanatory power of an explanation. Let me suggest six criteria that you can use to evaluate the relative strength of one particular explanation relative to a competing one. The first criteria is fit. By fit, we mean that the explanation fits better with our background knowledge than other explanations. Uh, for example, let's say there are two or more explanations, but our background knowledge favors one of the explanations. Uh, unless I have specific evidence that calls into question the background knowledge that I have, the explanation favored by the background knowledge should be accepted as the best explanation. A simple example of this is a tornado. If I have background knowledge that tornadoes occur in this area, as a matter of fact, I know that a tornado occurred tonight. I also know where that tornado occurred. I go to the location where the tornado occurred, and I see a house swept off its foundation. My background knowledge tells me that tornadoes, if they hit a house direct on, will often wipe a complete house off of its foundation. So by background knowledge of what a tornado can do and where a tornado was, and my observation that when tornadoes hit houses, they can wipe them off their foundation, if I drive into where that tornado's path was and I see a foundation with no house on it, the best explanation for that is not that aliens came and zapped it off. The best explanation is, given my background knowledge, that tornado hit that house and took it off its foundation. That's fit. The second criteria when looking at an explanation is simplicity or straightforwardness. In the philosophical world, this is referred to as Occam's razor. Simply put, it says that the best explanation is usually the one that requires the least number of people, the least number of processes, the fewest assumptions than other explanations do. So, for example, if my son is outside and I hear him throwing the baseball and all of a sudden, a baseball comes through the window. There could be a variety of explanations. Uh, one explanation could be was that three miles away, uh, there was a kid who was throwing a baseball, and it hit a tree, bounced off the tree, and hit a dog who got it in its mouth and ran with it but ran across a road and, to dodge a car, let go of the ball, which stuck in the fender of the car, which made a left about a quarter of a mile from my house, 
at which point the ball rolled into a ditch and then rolled downhill until it got to a place near my property, at what point I hit it with the mower and the mower blades threw the ball into the air and it caused it to go through the window of my house. Or, another explanation could be, my son was throwing the baseball just outside the window. His friend threw it to him, he missed it, and it came through the window. The simpler explanation is likely the better explanation. The third criteria is what we call scope. When we think about an explanation, the explanation that accounts for more of the observations or more of the facts than other explanations is the better explanation. So if I make 20 observations and I have one explanation that accounts for five of those explanations and I have another explanation that accounts for 19 of those observations, the better explanation, all things being equal, is the one that explains 19 of the observations. So scope is the third criteria. The fourth criteria is what we call conservativeness. Simply put, the explanation that requires us to give up fewer well-established beliefs or well-known facts is the better explanation. Uh, similar to that is the fifth criteria that I call gravity. Uh, the explanation that does a better job of explaining the most significant observations or most significant facts is the better explanation than the others who don't do as good a job of explaining the most important or significant observations. You see, not all observations are equal. Uh, if I find a person dead on the floor in my house, and I see a gun laying next to them, but I also see a Kleenex in the trash can. Those are both observations, but they're not likely equally significant. If I determine that the gun is significant, then the explanation that includes the gun is likely the better explanation because it accounts for the more significant fact or the more significant observation. The sixth criteria for assessing an explanation is what we call unification. By unification, we mean the explanation that does the best job at tying together more of the facts or more of the observations is probably the better explanation. So if I come home one day and I notice that my grass is shorter than it was when I left that morning. I also notice that my mower has been moved. Furthermore, I notice that the gas gauge on the mower is now showing empty, whereas it showed full earlier. As I walk into my house, I see grass clippings on the floor. I happen to look into the laundry room, and I see some clothes in the laundry room that seem to be covered in grass and dust. Now, one explanation for my short grass could be that locusts came through and ate it all that day. 
however, that would not explain the mower being moved, the gas being empty on the mower, the grass clippings in my house, and the dirty clothes in the laundry. Uh, another explanation could be that my neighbor brought their mower over and mowed my grass for me. However, that would lead the grass to be shorter, but again, it wouldn't account for the fact that the gas tank on my mower is empty, my mower has been moved, there are grass clippings on the floor in my house, and there are clothes in the laundry with grass all over them. Another explanation could be that my son mowed the lawn. Now think about that explanation. That explanation would account not only for the grass being shorter, but it could also account for the fact that the gas tank on the mower was empty, that the mower had been moved, that there were grass clippings on the floor when he walked in, and that his dirty laundry in the laundry room that has grass all over it is because he cut the lawn. Notice how the latter explanation does a better job at tying together more of the observations that I observed. In essence, a unifying explanation is like building a cumulative case. Any one of the pieces of evidence alone would be unconvincing for the latter explanation. When I, but when I put all of those observations together, my son mowing the lawn is the explanation that ties it all together. Therefore, it is a better explanation. So those are the six criteria for evaluating the explanatory power of an explanation. Now, there is actually a seventh one. We call it superiority. But it takes into account the first six. The superiority of an explanation simply means that one explanation does such a better job at the other six criteria that no other explanation is likely to match it and how well it pulls together those other six criteria. It's a better fit. It is simpler. It has more scope. It has conservativeness. It has gravity. It has unification better than any of the other explanations. That being the case, that explanation would be the best one. So now you have it. All explanations are not equal. When we look at different explanations for what we observe, the best explanation is the one that has the best explanatory power. So to summarize... To present a strong case is to present a case using the best explanation for the evidence that we have. Now, the fourth principle of engaging intentionally is to embrace uncertainty. So, the reality of it is, is that any time we are trying to prove something to be true, to prove a claim to be true, we have a burden of proof. But that burden of proof is not unlimited. The reality of it is, is that the truth of 
any claim by inference or abductive argument is never 100% certain beyond any possible doubt. Uh, that is a standard no one could ever meet when we're dealing with abductive arguments. The simple reality of it is, is that we can always make up a possible doubt. We can always come up with, yeah, but what if? Or we can come up with imaginary doubts or fanciful conjectures. Maybe aliens took them off the planet. So we can always come up with some reason to doubt. Any explanation is possible, but not every explanation is reasonable. So when we think about our burden of proof that we have as a Christian casemaker, let's embrace uncertainty. Let's embrace the fact that we know we should not have to prove something beyond any possible doubt. The only thing we need to do is to prove it beyond any reasonable doubt. By definition, a reasonable doubt is a doubt based on evidence, not a doubt that is based on fanciful conjecture, imaginary doubts, what-ifs. Those would not be a reasonable doubt. A reasonable doubt would be, given the observations and the evidence that I have, those pieces of evidence, those observations, lead me to question whether your explanation for those things is reasonable. So let's not shy away from not being able to prove something with 100% certainty. We don't live our lives that way in any other area of our life. If you get in your car today and you drive home, you are certain beyond a reasonable doubt that the brakes are not going to fail on you. On the other hand, you are not certain beyond any possible doubt. You could actually think of that doubt in your mind. You could posit that as a possible thing that could happen. But we would not call that a reasonable doubt. We would call that fanciful conjecture. We would call that a wild imagination. Um, we would call that your mind playing what-ifs on you. But it would not be a doubt that would be based on any evidence that you have. This is meaningful for us as Christian casemakers in several ways. First, for myself... I don't need to know beyond any possible doubt that the claims of the New Testament are true. That would be impossible. Even if I were there in those times, I could conjecture up some possible doubt. Well, I thought I saw what I saw, but maybe I was in a dream. Uh, maybe I was in a trance. Right? I could come up with all kinds of reasons, even if I was there and thought I saw it with my own eyes. That would not be a reasonable doubt. So as Christians, isn't it comforting to know 
that I don't need to know beyond any possible doubt before I can believe. I just need to know beyond any reasonable doubt. So when a claim is levied against us as a Christian casemaker that we can't prove any of this is true, well, the best response is to talk about what they mean by prove. If you mean prove beyond any possible doubt, you are right. We can't prove it beyond any possible doubt. But the reality of it is, is that we can't prove anything in this life beyond any possible doubt. We can always come up with a possible doubt. But that's not the standard. We can prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. What that means for us as Christian casemakers is that we don't have to know everything in order to know something. We may not have 100% of the evidence, but we have enough evidence. Think how this applies in a criminal trial. When somebody is put on trial for a crime... Let's say it was a bad crime. Let's say it was premeditated murder. Chances are nobody on the jury actually saw the person commit the murder. Further, given all the evidence, some on the jury may still have some unanswered questions. How'd they do it? Why did they do it? Where did they put the body? However, the jury can have enough evidence to know beyond a reasonable doubt that the person on trial committed the crime, committed the murder. The same is true for us as Christian casemakers. Our goal is not to prove that truth exists or that God exists, or that miracles are possible, or that the Bible is historically true beyond any possible doubt. Our goal is simply to lay out the evidence, which when looked at by a person open to considering the evidence, will certainly lead them to the conclusion of the truth of our claims. And that is where faith comes in. Faith is trusting that the best inference from the evidence is, in fact, true, even though it cannot be proven with 100% certainty. And that leads me to my fifth principle for engaging intelligently. The fifth principle is proving versus accepting. We can prove something true beyond reasonable doubt, but only the person can accept it as true. People can continue to reject the truth, even though the best explanation of the evidence is that our claim is true. They can reject it for several reasons. 
Um, they can reject it because they just don't think the evidence is compelling or you know they have rational reasons. They just need more evidence. Of course, our response as Christian casemakers is simply to meet them where they're at and help them find the evidence. Um, other people, they'll continue to reject the truths for, uh, let's just call it emotional reasons, how they feel about Christianity. Uh, maybe they had an uncle who claimed to be a Christian who was a really bad person. Or m maybe they've seen people call themselves Christians who fail to keep to the Christian standard. And so they may reject the truth for emotional reasons and not for rational reasons or because of a lack of evidence. But I would suggest to you that the reason why most people will continue to reject truth, even though it's the best explanation, is because they don't want it to be true. They willfully reject truth. You see, a lot of people are smart, and they realize that if they accept that truth exists, if they accept that God exists, if they accept that the Bible is historically reliable, and that miracles are possible, then they have to accept that there is a God who exerts authority over them and their life. And so instead of them being able to do what they want to in life, they would be subject to God. And they don't want to be subject to God. They want to retain the authority in their life. They want to be the ultimate authority in their life. And so they continue to reject truth so that they can continue to have authority over themselves. So people can still reject truth to not accept it even though we have proven it to be true beyond a reasonable doubt. So to accept a conclusion, even though proven beyond a reasonable doubt, requires faith. Because you're not 100% sure. You can't be 100% certain. And so faith fills the gap between reasonable doubt and absolute certainty. Put another way, Having corroborating evidence that infers a claim is true in no way delegitimizes whatever faith is required to act on the claim. Faith is still essential. So there you have it, my friends. Those are the five principles for engaging intelligently as a Christian casemaker. That wraps up this episode, my friends. Thank you for listening. I hope to have you join me next time. Until then, be clear, be gracious, and be persuasive. Be